This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode of Anchored is a little different. In it, I spend the evening in my own home, discussing fly rods and reels with my husband. We spend the hour talking about our own experiences working in fly shops and try to break down what someone just getting into the sport should know about making their first purchase. I'm going to need a beer for this. I've had a lot of people reaching out to me lately asking for advice on what sort of fly rod they should buy, what kind of reel they need, what kind of fly line they need. And usually what I do is I refer them to their local fly shop or I'll, you know, send them the link to an article. But I finally came to my senses and decided, you know what, we're going to do a podcast episode about it. And for those of you who are advanced anglers and already know this, feel free to skip this episode, just like, you know, people who aren't into hunting skip the hunting episodes. So on this particular episode, I have a very special guest on the show, and that is my husband, who is sitting across from me. So watch your P's and Q's. (laughs) (laughs) Now, why is Charles worthy of being this, you know, the guest to have on the show to discuss this? And the answer is, is quite truthfully, Charles is a phenomenal angler and has spent some time dabbling in the industry and knows a fair bit about fly shops. So without further ado, why don't you tell me your resume and why you know a thing or two about which outfit to buy? Straight out of high school, love fly fishing, got a job in a fly shop. Worked there full-time for about three years, part-time, 
total of five. The shop was owned by an excellent, excellent man by the name of Andrew Bros, and the shop was called the Australian Fly Fisherman. And uh, that was really when I started working in the fly shop, it was where I really started to learn about fly fishing. Do you think Um, it's changed a lot since then? I don't think the basics have changed a lot since then. Did no. you guys have carbon fiber? You would have then, right? Yeah, yeah. We had when I first started working in the shop, we had uh, a lot of hardy rods, which were popular. We had some sage rods. We had some Loomis rods. That was a proper fly shop. We had a good selection. But I mean, back then, all the sage rods were all the brownies, yeah, RPs, even RPLs. And I think the thing with the fly shop was was Andrew was always very very honest with people. If, if a person came in and was new to fly fishing and they wanted an outfit that they were probably going to use three or four times a year as a beginner or as somebody that would just fly fish casually when they had a chance, we would sell them the equipment that would, that would do that job for them. You know, we were never going to sell a beginner a sage rod. We were never going to sell an expert a, a Silstar rod or something like that. Why not sell a beginner a sage rod? Oh, look, we, we certainly, if, some, if, if a person came in and said, listen, I'm, I'm starting out, I want the absolute best rod that's available, we would certainly sell them that rod. But if, if somebody was to come in and say to us that they were bought a caravan and they were going to do some camping and they'd like to do some fly fishing, we certainly weren't the sort of shop that was going to try and pressure them into buying, a, you know, back then a five or $600 rod. We had a range of rods for a range of skill levels and we were there to put the right rod in the in the right person's hands. Okay. And most of these people, unfortunately, haven't seen you fish. So they don't know that you're, you're good for it. But I actually met Charles on a fishing trip. A lot of people ask me how we met and we met on a fishing trip in Norway and you're a sexy caster. And uh, I picked him up by teaching him how to cast cack-handed. Yep. Arms from the back and everything. <laughs> Were you just pretending to be really bad off your left shoulder? Uh, I was never really good off my left shoulder. I'm better now. Mm. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive into... John Doe walks into a fly store. He is a gear fisherman. So let's say that he's been fishing soft plastics or baits. And he has read that there are advantages to fly fishing in his region. So the first thing he does is he walks into a fly shop and he says... Um, You guys sell plane tickets? (laughs) That is the cackle of my dear friend Catherine Laflamme, who works at Michael and Young Fly Shop in British Columbia. I'd asked her to send me over some questions that customers ask her while she's working at the shop. We're nice people here at Michael and Young. <laughs> we'll try that again. John walks into a fly shop and he says, I just started fly fishing. What do I need to get started? After telling the person that you want to get into fly fishing, the second thing you then need to ask is, Well, what do you want to fish for? Trout, salmon, steelhead? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> I think that's question two. Or question three. I've had a lot, a lot, a lot of customers, as do all the fly shops around the world, have people come into the shop, been spin fishing their entire life, they want to get into fly fishing. The first question they ask, why is the line so thick? That's the first. See, we both worked in fly shops. I, that was definitely not in my top few questions. We, I always had, why are the rods so long? Why is the line so thick? We always used to like to educate people that knew nothing about fly fishing why is the line so thick? Why is the rod so long? So, oh, okay. Okay, so, so you start by thick. saying, listen, with conventional gear, you use the weight of the lure or the yeah. bait to get the hook to the fish. Yeah. But in fly fishing, we're using the weight of the line. To get the fly to the fish. 
Okay. Yeah. If we had a trout fly right now and I went to throw it, I'm going to land it five feet from me. But if I was able to put it on a fly line, cast it on a fly rod, now I might be able to cast it, you know, 40, 50, 60 some odd feet. Yeah. So let's just get back to John Doe here, whatever, whatever, John Smith. That sounds a lot less dead and corpse-like. So John Smith goes into the store. I would ask John Smith, what would you like to fish for and how often are you going to fish? Why does it matter how often they're going to fish? You want to put the best, most suitable outfit into your customer's hands. In my opinion, what's his skill level? How often is he going to use the outfit? I mean, if you were only going to drive a car twice a year, I'd have trouble selling somebody a Ferrari. I just think that there's all sorts of great rods and reels and combos out there to suit all kinds of fishermen. And I think as, a, as an absolute beginner, unless you really want to throw your heart and your wallet into it, I, I, I think you should start out with something a little more basic and something a little more to your needs and, and to your skill level. I, I think people become better casters by starting out with a rod that's maybe not the Ferrari. But see, a lot has changed over the years because, I mean, realistically, how many years ago were you working in the fly shop? Uh, I'm 47. I was 17, so 30 years ago. See, I'm, what am I, 36? Or am I 37? 36. And I was working at the fly shop when I was like 21 or 22. And even back then, back then that was when they were just starting to go overseas and make fly rods at real affordable rates. Because prior to that, like when I was in my teens and definitely in your time, fly rods were really expensive. It was like you could only afford them if A, you had money, or B, they were a hand-me-down, or a C, if you were a rod maker and you can go get a blank and, and make it yourself. So it was really limited. But now, I mean, you can get not a Ferrari, but definitely a, a Honda for a 200 bucks, a whole outfit. And I mean, it's a decent outfit that's not that much different to the $1,000 Sage out there, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, look, and even in, my, even in the time I was in the shop, 30 years ago. I mean, your high, high end rod was 600 bucks. They weren't, they weren't 12 or 1300 bucks like they are today. Mm. Your, but your would it low have been, end. Would it have been equivalent to that back then? 600 bucks oh, 30 maybe, years ago? Maybe, maybe, maybe. But, but your low end rod was 150 bucks. But were the we low end rods back then complete shit? Look, they weren't too bad. They weren't too bad. I learned on a, on a $100 rod. And I think. I think a hundred dollar rod's a good thing to learn on. If, if, yeah, I learned if on an old eight weight Shakespeare glass piece of garbage, yeah. and it was great. Yeah. So let's fast track this just a little bit and get back to the basics here. Okay. So we're talking to John Smith. So the first thing we need to do is explain to him that there are different sizes of rod. So generally, you're looking at from size zero to fourteen. So like when I'm teaching students, I'll say to them a Trout is going to be suited on average to a four or five weight rod. Say a salmon or steelhead is a seven or eight weight rod, 12 on tarpon, 14 for sharks and, and marlin. So that's just kind of putting it into perspective. First and foremost, the the person needs to select a fly rod or to get advised on, on the weight of fly rod that is going to suit the sort of fish that they're catching, whether it's trout or bass or marlin or sharks or all of those sorts of things. Okay, so let's get back to John and see what his next step is. Most people start out with the nine foot six weight rod. It does all your trout, small ones, big ones. It handles small salmon, so you can fish for small coho and pink salmon with a six weight. 
Um, it's easy to cast, easy to learn with. It's not too heavy, not too light. It's sort of right in the middle. Okay. And then you just match a reel. I would say to him, you know, what kind of flies are you planning on fishing with this rod? Because that's going to make a big difference too. If he wants to go out with this, you know, with these enormous flies, or like let's say for people in BC and Alberta or, you know, wherever they want to go for bull trout with these six, seven inch long, enormous weighted flies, they might have a hard time casting that on a four weight rod. So even though they're fishing for a bull trout that's the same size as a rainbow trout, they might be better suited to a heavier rod. Can we break some of that down for beginners who are, are questioning why some of their friends fish for some species with seven weights and other friends fish for the same species with four weights? So once we decide on the weight of rod, that weight of rod is going to throw a certain weight of line. And I think the person then needs to consider the size of the lures and the and the baits that I'm currently throwing in my local area. If they're particularly large baits and lures, maybe I'd advise to go one weight heavier of fly rod than, than what might be recommended for that style of fish, particularly if I was a beginner, because remember... It's our line that throws these these flies, and if they're a big fly, they're going to be heavy and they're going to be wind resistant. And for a beginner, they're going to be difficult to throw around on the fly line. So you don't want to put people off fly fishing. You want to you want to get a rod that's going to make life easy, certainly in the beginning, and get people out there fishing with their fly rod. So you're saying if they're already successful. By fishing with, let's say, a soft plastic that's three inches long, yes. that they should then strive to throw flies that are similar to that in three inches long and try to get a fly rod that can cast that? Of course, yeah. I think if I was a bass fisherman and I was catching bass on lures and I decided I wanted to get into fly fishing, I'd want to be f- throwing flies that were similar size and shape but and then why, weight why to even, the lures that I'm throwing. Why even go to fly fishing then? See, I, I always think that one of the reasons you should advance to fly fishing is that there are all sorts of advantages to fly fishing. Why would somebody who's being successful with what they're using right now want to even bother switching to the fly? Well, often people that fish, um, I mean, it's rare for somebody to start with. It happens, but it's certainly in Australia anyway. And and probably I would suggest in the States. Look, there are a small portion of people that learn to fish from the get-go with a fly rod. Lucky, lucky people who's, who's, who are in the position to the first rod they ever touch is a fly rod. I think a lot of people... I think they're unlucky people. I think they're <laughs> ripping themselves off because they <laughs> don't become half the anglers they could be. Well, there's all kinds of fishing out there. But look, I, I think the path for most, and, and my, maybe I stand corrected, but I, I feel the path for most is most people start out, you know, as a kid fishing with bait, fishing with a bobber. Um, kids, I'm telling my own story that that were really really interested in fishing and wanted to go a little bit deeper and saw people throwing these lures and you know once you're throwing lures around for for a long long time or even a short time you see this these people fly fishing and they're they're throwing these beautiful lines around and and i mean let's face it it looks it looks fun it is fun i think people that dig deeper into fishing find themselves looking to try fly fishing and it is advantageous in the way that like, like if, if a trout or even a bass is honed in on an insect in particular, 
you can't take a mayfly and tie it onto your spinning rod. It's going to just disintegrate and fall apart. But I mean, I guess you could do it with a fly, but you can't get the distance because you're going to need heavy weight. It's going to disrupt the water, et cetera, et cetera. But with fly fishing, you're able to truly present what the fish is eating if they're eating insects to them in the most natural way possible. It's often the case in fishing where, you know, certain fish in certain areas, be they saltwater or freshwater fish, eating small crabs or small insects, the, the only way to really present something to them that's truly natural to them is with a fly rod. But... But there are other advantages too. Like if you're bass fishing and you see if, or even saltwater fishing, you know, you see a fish at, say you're facing one o'clock on the bow and now all of a sudden there's a fish at, I don't know, six o'clock. You can easily pick up and recast without having to reel all that line in. So that's an advantage. You can be a lot quicker. Look, there's certainly advantages to the casting as well. But look, I honestly think fly fishing certainly has its advantages, but I think for most fishermen, the big challenge associated with fly fishing is the fact that it is just that little bit harder than doing it with a normal rod. And I think that's what attracts a lot of people to fly fishing. Okay. So let's get back to the basics here. There are niche fisheries where shorter and longer rods are advantageous, but typically on average, if you stick with a nine foot rod, and we're only talking about single hand casting right now. I think nine feet long will get you through any situation, whether it's marlin or trout. Okay, so now we know that. Let's say that you live in the Pacific Northwest, you want to fish for trout, salmon, steelhead. You can use an eight-weight rod for all of those things, but it may not be as much fun. But on average, most anglers have in their arsenal a four or five-weight, one or the other, and a, an eight-weight. And that usually gets people through for the first few years of their fishing career. I think those two rods would get most people through, to be honest, most of their fly fishing life. A lot of people get very confused by the fact that a bonefish is the same size as a trout. And they assume that for the bonefish, that automatically means that it's suitable for the five weight. But the reality is, is that bonefish fight a lot harder than trout. So not all fish are created equal. Bonefish fight harder. They're in windier conditions. The flies are often heavier. So a lot of people will tell you not even to bother packing your four or five weight on a saltwater trip, and I actually do agree with that. Oh, I completely agree with that. Okay, so just so that people listening know that, because you mentioned earlier, you know, for a bass, I think you said like a seven weight or an eight weight. And I think a lot of people would be like, well, hold on, wait a second. I mean, the bass I'm catching are smaller than trout. But again, the flies, that a lot a lot of the time, the flies that you're fishing for bass are larger and they're going to be easier to cast on a larger rod. Yeah, much easier to cast. And they're more wind-resistant flies, those bass bugs and things, and uh, for your average person to throw those at a four or five is can be quite difficult. Yeah. Start at your fly and work your way back. We then need to dive into actions. So one of my biggest irritations, and there are various opinions on this, but one of my biggest irritations is when you go into a shop and jo- you know John Smith is just happy that he finally had the balls to walk into the shop. And some dickhead at the counter wants to pound his chest and look like Tarzan talking about, well, then there's this action and you want a soft action, a mid flex action. Do you want a fast action? You want to tip back like all of this stuff. And it's literally like John Smith has gone in to buy a car 
and he would have been happy with a Tercel, but you're trying to sell him a Ferrari. It's really intimidating. He's going to drive it like a Tercel. So you may as well just sell him something that's practical and that gets the job done. What are, what is your opinion? Well, first of all, let's explain action. So what are the different actions of fly rods explained in a non-Tarzan way? <laughs> Non-Tarzan way. Well, look, this is where I started out with regard to the rods. The rods go through rods with a very, very soft action, a little more forgiving. Um, but what does that mean? Like, let's break this down. Remember, we're talking to a lot of beginners right now. So the way I always describe it is this, a, a, a slow action rod is going to bend primarily within the first 90% of the rod. The or from the tip down to the handle, a mid flex is going to be say 60, and a tip flex is going to be, or a fast action rod is going to be the first 30%. So, a real tippy, stiff rod. And what that means when you're casting a slow action rod means that you're going to have a slower stroke to allow that rod to load with the weight of my fly line before going into the next step of that cast. So that can be a disadvantage in wind situations, fast-paced situations, or honestly, if you're a bad caster, you probably aren't going to be able to get away with that that sort of rod. You need something a little more forgiving. True. You know, you can fight me on this stuff. (laughs) It's like an everyday occurrence being challenged by Charles, and he's being so well-behaved right now. I think, look, to be honest, I think what you just said would, would also really confused the person that's just walked into the... Did I just pull a Tarzan? Yeah, you did. I mean, people don't understand tips, this, that, fast action, slow action. I think just to simplify it for beginners, the fly cast itself is, is quite difficult. I, I think if you're starting out, a lot of these very fast action rods that are very tippy are designed for people that can really, really cast a rod. Do you Earth think that a, t- a tippy rod means that you, sh- you need to be more experienced Look, or better abso- caster? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you I don't think, think it's the opposite, that it should be? No, no. I think a really stiff tippy rod is so fine with the timing of the cast and where the inputs of power and, and line slide and slip go in. I think for somebody who's starting out, that sort of rod is going to be really, really frustrating, particularly if someone sells them a... Uh, you know, a weight forward, super taper line for Stop, it. stop. You're going Tarzan. All right, got it. So we both agree that a really great entry-level rod or a rod it's for everybody gonna is going to be in the middle. Soft. Gonna no, allow you're people. saying slow? Absolutely. I'm saying mid-flex. Well, slow to mid. Slow to mid. But something that allows the beginner or the, or the person that's starting out to learn to cast the fly rod. I'll give you I, that. I just don't yeah, think there's yeah. any point putting one of these whiz banger sticks in someone's hand and they're going to they're gonna start tearing their hair out. No, well, I don't you think know it's fair happens. to the person. Those are the people in the flats boat who are like, oh my God, I don't have a Sage One. I don't have a pool cue. I can't go fishing. I need my own rod. Whereas a lot of the great casters who learned on a slower rod will cast just about anything you put in their hands. I honestly don't think you can properly appreciate a really high-end rod unless you've learned with something different, honestly. Okay. I'm, so- not, I'm not being a snob. I, I just feel that it's the way to do it. Let's talk about a little bit of the anatomy of the rod working from the butt all the way up, as you like, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, though, let's, so, let's walk through the anatomy of a rod. So all of the lighter rods are designed for s- small fishing, whether it's small rivers, small streams, small flats, small water. 
and small fish. And because of that, rods up to about a five weight don't have that little, what we would call a fighting butt, um, that little tiny butt extension that comes out of the reel seat below where the reel screws on. In general, six weight upwards will have some sort of little fighting butt. But what are they designed for? Uh, I think as the rods get heavier in the front end, they they probably act as a little bit more weight down the bottom end of the rod. I think some rod manufacturers have them on there to balance the rod, to be honest, a little nicer. You don't actually nicer. think that, do you? Yeah. You don't think it's to shove, you know, to shove into your forearm or into your it, gut? It's to- for both things. It's for both things. But I think if you got right into the nitty gritty of it and uh, you start to get into the heavier rods, I think that slightly longer reel seat with the with the fighting butt mm-hmm. just balances that back end of the rod a little better. While you're casting, you mean? To hold, oh, just to a general fish. balance. Oh, here we go. Are you sure you, you know? want to go down this road? I don't agree with that. I don't agree with the whole balancing outfit on two fingers thing. I think it's a bunch of bullshit. I think it's cute and I think it makes people feel like they're doing tricks in the store when they're like, and then look it, if you put your fingers right here on the cork, it balances perfectly with this $675 reel. But the reality is, depending on how much fly line is out, I mean, that weight is constantly changing. I think uh, if we were going to get right out of the beginner's circle and and talk two-handed rods, I think... No, different. 200 rods involve using your bottom hand as your driver. And hence, I think you want the rod heavier in the bottom end. Of course, the on rod. a two-handed rod, which is utilizing a second hand and that driving hand space. On a single-handed rod, I think to cast the thing, if you're going to split hairs, you'd want to have where you hold the, the cork grip of the single-handed fly rod. I think you, you want the thing to be fairly balanced at that point. I mean, you're waving the thing like a wand, it should be the 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 balance point should be where your hand where you're holding the rod absolutely okay well there are various opinions on that and this will be discussed in an upcoming episode let's continue to move forward then on other parts of the anatomy of a fly rod you've got the real seats you've got down locking up locking not really a difference as far as anything fishing related again a balance Issue. Some manufacturers choose to have a down locking reel seat so the 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 knurled rings wind the re- lock the reel down to the bottom of the rod, and then an up locking seat with the knurled rings would lock the reel up into the bottom of the grip. And then you got your different corks. Yeah, let's talk about grips. Actually, you do a great job explaining this. Well, I'm surprised, honestly, this younger generation, and if I've got to make a statement, I think the younger generation has got absolutely very little knowledge on the different kinds of grips, cork grips. You know, back in my day, the shop I worked in, we built rods and people used to place an order. They'd order a blank, they'd order all the all the guides, all the snake guides, the tips, and they would very particularly order a, a particular kind of cork grip. Let's talk about the the reasoning and, and the, the functions of various cork, cork grips. So let's go ahead and start with the cigar grip. There's all kinds of grips. There's a cigar. There's the western. There's the reverse half western. There's the wells, the full wells, the half wells. I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of grips. They're basically... Some of the, like you mentioned, the cigar, that's a tiny little grip that's rounded at both ends and it's designed for a smaller, lighter 
sort of fly rod. When you start to get up to the wells, uh, the full wells, these are, uh, are bigger cork grips that are designed to be comfortable for a, for a bigger fly rod, something around an eight. Eight, eight to ten weight rod and then and then as you well know as you start to get up into the heavier saltwater rods you'll some people might have seen pictures in magazines people with fly rods big fish they've got the cork grip above the reel and then they've got a, a, an additional grip halfway up or, or up onto the butt of the rod which is which is known as a fighting grip and and that's going to be a big game or a very heavy fly rod designed for catching big fish that's got not only the grip it's now got an extra grip for making fighting fish easier and more comfortable and, and and that's i think the purpose of any grip i don't think people should bother about the size of the shape rather make sure the grip on their rod is is comfortable and suits the size of the rod okay let's talk about pieces over the years we've watched rods go from two-piece rods to the wonderful four-piece rod and now all the way yep. down to six-piece rods i came from the school of uh fancy rod snobs Guys that are right, right into rods are going to say that, you know, the more ferrules on the rod or the more joins in the rod, the less that that rod is going to perform and everywhere there's a ferrule, there's a stiff point. Energy, well, there's an energy disruption. The energy's not transferred as smoothly through the rod. I think think that conversation these days, honestly, is mm, a little dated. I think to educate people, we need to just quickly touch on the anatomy of a of a fishing rod. Um, you mean how it's made? Well, it's a tool and, and they're designed to throw a weight, whether it's a spinning rod throwing a, a, a weight of a lure or a fly rod throwing the weight of a line. They are made from carbon fibre, fibreglass. They're, they're wound onto, onto a thing that's called a mandrel. The person that designs the rod, the taper of that rod, the taper of the mandrel that they're wrapped around, is specifically designed to transfer the energy from the fisherman's arm, wrist, hand, shoulder, through the rod, through the line, and, and through to what that rod is designed cast so a fly rod's nine feet long a spinning rod six feet long for convenience people like to have rods break down into shorter sections to be able to be easily transported or or taken fishing that's in the back of the truck big part of it obviously is is travel because there was a time when you couldn't even carry on your fly rods but now you can and so for me personally it's worth sacrificing a little bit of energy disruption to be able to bring my rod with me on the airplane of course. So people over time have wanted rods to be able to be packed shorter and more easily transported. I think in the old days, well, I know in the old days, the technology of, well, how do we make this beautiful rod and then cut it in half? Because all the old rods were two-piece rods. That was fancy back in the day, a two-piece rod. So how do we make this beautiful rod and cut it in half and, and have the person be able to put it together um, when they get to their to their place where they want to fish, and and have the thing work properly. Well, in the old days, you'll notice the old cane rods used to have brass ferrules. and I taped my old my bamboo rod together. The old, old, old ones were just sticky tape together, yeah. The, the old ferrules were 
exactly that. They were old, they, they weren't well designed and, and it wasn't until rod companies figured out instead of making a nine foot long rod and cutting it in half and trying to join it back together, they actually now rod companies make the, the sections in individual sections and they make them to, to slip together with the section in front or behind them and these days the technology of, of ferrules is absolutely phenomenal and that's why we now see rods that are three piece, four piece, five piece and six piece that when they're put together perform almost as good as they would if they were a one piece rod. Nah, would you buy a six piece honestly? Yeah, look, I'm a three or four piece guy, but a three piece. But you can't even travel from spot to spot with a three piece. You try to break it down, and it's like having a oh, a nine foot rod, a single handed rod, three piece. Oh, I've got a lot of three piece rods still. Really, you don't mind that? No. Oh, it's like uh, all of my analogies are really offensive, so I'm going to leave them out. But I hate it. Look, in my day, the less pieces, the better these days. So when I you're think. traveling from spot to spot and you don't want to break your entire rod down, like with a four-piecer, you just break it down the middle and, you know, I put the butt section to the bottom of the second piece and then yeah. I wind it tight. What do you do with three pieces? You break off the top two sections, turn them upside down, so the tip's down at the reel, and then you do exactly the same thing. You crank the line around the handle and crimp it down. Good to know. So I can buy you a six-piece rod for your birthday <laughs> and you won't complain one time. <laughs> I'm just here. Well, my rod chip's what so do you big think I am? Some sort of hippie backpacker? <laughs> Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In a nutshell, you should be able to buy an entire outfit for $200 if you had to, and you should be able to do so at a fly shop without having to go to a Walmart or some big box store. I think these days, surely, yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. you can take the price up to what? I mean, you could buy a real fancy rod for oh, you spend, 800 900 uh, bucks. Oh, well, look. Uh, Single probably, hands. We're talking US dollars, probably, yeah, eight 900 bucks. You're going to buy the... The best of the best. But that's why it's really important too to develop a relationship with your fly shop. But also because you can cast the rods before you buy them. I think that's really, really true. And I was just going to touch on that with the really, really high-end rods. You know, high-end rod is going to have a nice epoxy job. It's going to have nice guides on it. It's going to have nice cork. But is that worth the difference between $150 and $600? Bucks? The, the difference in price is the performance of the rod. You're not going to get $600 extra value out of some cork and a couple of guides on a, on a fancy rod. The money and the investment is in the blank that the rod's built on and the performance of that blank. And I think unless you can really maximise the performance of that rod, there's really probably not much point a beginner buying such a rod. So that was a little less 
organized than I had envisioned and <laughs> it kind of skipped around a little bit. So let's try to let's try to keep it focused on this next portion when we talk about fly reels. We're going to go back to John Smith because quite frankly, <laughs> you and I suck at this and it's a good thing we don't work in the fly shop because if John Smith walked in and we just had that conversation, he would have literally walked out and we wouldn't have even noticed that he slammed the door behind him. Bamboozled. Yeah. So let's put him right back in front of us. Sorry to all the John and Jane Smiths listening. I promise you we're going to be more focused here. I'm going to let you take the authority on this right now. Because I personally admit that like when I'm teaching a fly casting workshop, I even skip the page. I've got this fancy PDF. I even skip that page and say to people under my breath, oh, they're just overpriced line holders. Let's go straight into fly lines, which are what matter. And just as a side note, we are going to talk about fly lines, but not in this episode because it's getting late and fly lines is a whole different conversation that we will get into, but just not on this episode. So reels, you are the real king. Honey, I've never seen anybody. Why does somebody need so many reels? Well, I have a lot of reels. You don't. Um, you have reels that you. We cleaned out the office the other night. You didn't even know you owned those reels. I've kept every reel I've ever had. And look, there's reels and there's reels. I think if you're trout fishing, you're fishing for little fish. I think the reel really is a, a, a line storing mechanism. Okay, John wants to fish for bass. What does that mean he needs to buy for his reel? What weight is the rod? I think it says six on the, uh, just above the handle here. Okay, perfect. And have you fly casted before? Never. I remember buying my first reel and one of the things that I was really relieved to hear was that I could use the same reel on say a rod size up or down. So when I bought my, uh, let's say a reel for my five weight rod, I could put it on my four weight and also on my six weight rod. Look, all of the reel manufacturers design their reels and they size their reels for a market. You know, a a real manufacturer will say, well, this is a five, an eight, a 10, a 12. That's generally how they, how, but you know. And they're bigger. I mean, a 12 for a tarpon is going to be bigger than a five, a reel that's suitable for a five weight rod because at the end of the day, you need to have more backing on a tarpon reel. Your fly line is going to be thicker for a tarpon reel. You need to have more line as a whole on that reel. So obviously the reel itself is going to be So the, the, reels, the reels are sized for a job. So when you're looking for a reel and someone says, oh, this is a five-weight reel, that's going to be a reel that's of a particular size that can hold some backing line behind the fly line. Literally back up so that if the fish runs farther than your fly line allows it to, you've now got several hundred yards of backing, which is just a deck runner, like a braided polyester that's designed to keep you attached to the fish so that you don't lose it and your fly line. So your average fly line is 80 to 100 feet long. So we may we may hook a fish with that fly line that's going to take more than 80 to 100 feet of line. And that's just some kind of thin line. Some people use monofilament. Some people use a braided line. But it's typically 150 yards if you're trout fishing. That's one of the reasons why you'd want to have a larger reel. Yeah, a manufacturer that says this is a five-weight reel, that reel is going to be sized typically for about 150 yards of some kind of backing 
plus a five weight fly line. But the beauty of what the manufacturers do is that this it's not an exact science. So if you were to buy the, the reel that's going to suit your outfit is, is what this manufacturer is calling a five weight reel. That doesn't mean that you have to put 150 yards of backing and a, and a five weight line on that reel. That reel is going to be good for a couple of line sizes either side of what the manufacturer calls that reel so you could probably put some more backing on it and a slightly smaller four weight fly line on it or a little less backing maybe or maybe even the same and a five or a six weight line on that reel so the reel sizes generally are designed to straddle a few line sizes either side of what they say which sounds like it'd be really annoying because you'd have to constantly unwind your line put on a new line but that's one of the great reasons are one of the reasons why I believe that people should take advantage of the spare spool options. One of the other things that has become common with today's reels is that you can interchange the retrieve. So historically, fly reels could only be wound with the right hand, no? No, I think, uh, I think the very, very early fly reels were either a left or a right hand wind. Well, how come we couldn't find old Hardy Perfects in left? Uh, that I'm not sure of. You'll have to speak to um, Chris Henshaw about that. But or you uh, think they're just rare as hen's teeth? No, look, I think the very, very old reels were either one or the other. It was either a right-hand wind reel or a left-hand wind reel. These days, the manufacturers make the reels interchangeable generally. Sometimes you need to buy a little kit or a little part or something, but it's very easy these days to convert most reels from a right to a left-hand wind or, or back the other way. But you have to then... Wind the line back on the reel the other way. So you've got to strip it all off somewhere safe, want to get a beer and a pizza, and it's done. <laughs> okay. I have a question then. How come everybody your age and older seems to only reel with their right. But it seems like so many people in my generation reel with their left. Is that just the old adage or like the old lefty thing about, you know, you want to reel with your dominant hand, your strongest hand? Or is it just that back in the day there were fewer left-hand retrieve reels available for purchase? No, I don't think it was about fewer reels. Look, if I, um, if I had my time over, I cast with my right hand and I blame my parents for this, I should have wound with my left hand. See, that's what I, That's how I feel. I always feel like because I don't want to switch hands because I'm, mm. I'm casting with my right, I want to be able to set into my fish and go straight into my reel. I don't want to start switching hands. Yeah. I've always been a little shocked at the people who real who do the switch and risk losing their fish but i mean there is this whole group of of people who obviously have been around and doing this a lot longer than i have yeah. who follow a lot of the old guard these old legends who yes. have told them that they need to reel with their strongest hand and i admit like my hands do get tired at times but i i, I what are your thoughts on that well i cast with my right hand and i wind with my right hand but so. you said that you would do it differently yeah so if you wanted to be the most efficient at fishing, you're going to cast with your dominant hand and wind with your non-dominant hand. Okay, so what would you say to John at this point then? Well, look, reels are a personal choice. You can spend 
60 bucks on a reel, you can spend $6,000 on a reel. And I think John Smith needs to decide how much he wants to spend and I'd be in, in a position to advise him on, on the performance of each of those reels. So something very, very basic is going to have a what's known here in Australia, we'd call it a click drag. It's a spring and pole system. We call them click and poles in North America. Click and pole. So it's got a very basic spring in there. It winds nicely on the incoming when you're winding in a fish or winding in the line. It's got a little bit of resistance on the outgoing, which is provided by the basic spring and the little triangular pole that literally engages in a little single gear inside the reel. And as it goes out, it creates a click and, and the click is the resistance that just provides a little tiny bit of drag. Look, all fishing reels, no matter whether they're fly fishing reels or conventional fishing reels, the idea of a reel is it's something that you wind line onto, stores your line, and it's designed to be easy on the retrieve. So when the person is cranking on the handle, winding in the line, whether they're winding it in when they're finished fishing for the day or whether they've got a big fish on the end, they're easy to wind in. And then the whole purpose of a fishing reel really is that when you've got a fish on and he's trying to get away from you, it it applies some sort of brake mechanism to stop the fish from getting away. Right. So in a nutshell, if I had to define drag... In fly in fishing, particular, it, 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 you would you would I would it is the call tension it between you and a fish. The braking system that's that's on the reel that you're using to fight the fish with. Right. So on my click and pull reels, because mm-hmm. I do like a lot of the old style reels, mm-hmm. I'm using my hand as the drag. So I use my palm to apply some pressure onto the reel as it's spinning because there is no drag as such on my reel. So that's because the standard click reel, which is what you're using most of the time, it provides a small amount of resistance for when a fish is trying to take line, but it's just a little click, click, click mechanism. So with those reels, you're exactly right. If the angler needs to apply, if the fish is getting away from you in a, in a big way, the angler, the, their only option is, is to, it's called palming the reel, and the angler would uh, apply his the palm of his hand to the to the spool of the reel and use that as the as additional braking. Would you recommend that for someone who's just getting started? It was an easy transition for me because I used to fish a center pin and so it made sense. Look, but think for a beginner? I, look, for a beginner fishing for small fish that don't take a whole lot of line, small trout, average trout, big trout, to be quite honest, I think those reels are absolutely more than adequate for, for anybody and that's why they're so popular. I mean, there's there's heaps of them on the market. They're very, very popular. From there, if John Smith said to me he was going to go fishing for something, a, a larger species of fish, something in the salt water or some kind of freshwater fish that, that's large and takes a lot of line, I think now you want to be starting to look at a reel that's got a more intricate, in inverted commas, braking system or drag system. Can, can we so. talk about some of the ridiculous marketing that I'm seeing about drags that can stop cars and, you know, these drags that just seem so unnecessary? Because a story I always like to tell is when you think of needing to have the ultimate car stopping drag, what kind of fish do you think? You think crazy billfish, sharks, stuff like that. My first marlin that I hooked into, Charles was in the back going, 
you know, adjust your drag, adjust your drag. So I went to crank down and increase the tension on my drag, which you would do with most other species. And then obviously, as soon as I adjusted the drag and and tightened it, I lost my fish because I didn't factor in all the tension from the water when that fish had sounded. And what you had meant when you said adjust your drag was to back off the drag. So I guess all that to say that even on the most badass, crazy fish, even then you don't need to necessarily have that drag. Why would anyone need to have car-stopping drag? Look, there's certainly forms of fishing, fly fishing and conventional fishing, where you need to have some serious stopping power in your reel. You know, in conventional fishing, big bass and heavy snag country, the fish grabs the lure, he wants to turn around and take you straight back into the sticks. Certainly lots of fish like that here, South Africa. I think in the fly fishing world, people that are going to be fishing for predominantly saltwater fish, I think. I've had to crank on milkfish and big GTs. Those are the only two fish I've ever had to crank down on. Look, I think without getting species specific, I think there is plenty of circumstances in the fishing world out there where you need to have a reel that's got a serious braking system. Let's take the conversation down that road. So one of the things that is different about such a system is A, it's a system that can handle the salt water. So it's not made of plastic components. It's stuff that's not going to rust out in the salt, even though you do still need to, to hose it all off with fresh water, right? Yeah, I'm washing all of my fishing gear down. Look, there's there's multiple different kinds of drag systems out there or braking systems, drag systems on reels. There's cork, you know, with a screw and a pressure plate. It's a mechanical drag. You oil the cork disc and you wind down on it with the drag knob and adjust it that way. But there's newer reels and I suppose Jack Charlton pioneered a, a different drag system quite a long time ago. It's a, it, it is a sealed system. I believe it's metal on metal. It, it's not the sort of thing that you just crank down on as hard as you can and then when you can't crank it anymore you get the pliers out it's got specific drag one to like ten on the dial you mean yeah yeah so it's not it's not a tension thing it's ingenious but there's all sorts of different drags available on, on all sorts of fly reels that range in price from from cheap and cheerful to some absolutely magnificent reels available in this world. You are a real dork. I mean, you can spend no, like you're real. I think you on this stuff. would you replace a small me car in bed some with of these some of these reels. For your birthday, I'm just going to put reels all over the bed and like spray <laughs> some perfume on them for you. I love a good reel. Lots of people like <laughs> enjoy a beautiful fishing reel. Um, well, one of the things that you had said that really kind of summarized it perfectly was these systems are designed to keep lubrication in and to keep water out. Yeah. Well, that's that's the benefit of these very high-end sealed drag system reels. Okay. Let's talk pickup ratios. Okay. I'll let you just take the reins on this so that I'm not interrupting you again. Pickup ratios? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the big difference with the fly reel to people that are used to spinning reels is that spinning reels have – a gear ratio they're all geared so what that means is with most spinning reels for one wind of the handle of the reel most spinning reels are somewhere between four and six revolutions of the spool so for every time you wind that's being multiplied through a set of gears which is why they're called multipliers 
Yeah, so that's your standard spinning reel. Now, the big difference between that and a fly reel is your fly reel doesn't have gears. It's not a multiplier. There are a couple of fly reel manufacturers that have made multipliers over the years. Some very dyed-in-the-wall sorts of fly fishermen might suggest that's not quite fly fishing, but regardless, people have made multiplying fly reels, but they're very rare and they're very expensive. But you, you stock standard normal fly reel for one wind of the handle is one revolution of the spool. Do you think that that's not quite fly fishing? Uh, oh. No, I think for big game applications, and no, I don't have an opinion either way. I, I think it's it, it is a question. Though. It's a fair question. <laughs> it's not a question I ask, but I do know that it's a reel that's usually very expensive that I can't afford. I mean, there's even lever drag fly reels out there What's these that? days. No, I won't bore people, but all the big game fishing reels are what they call a lever drag. So they have a lever that cranks up and increases or decreases the drag. It's like a, it looks like you're driving a train. You ever seen the controls on a train? Mm-hmm. I've seen those on multipliers. You're saying on fly reels too? There are a couple of real manufacturers that have made a, a lever drag fly reel, yeah, for really marlin fishing basically. Oh, interesting. I did mm. not know that. Mm. Okay, so ratios. We're looking at a one-to-one ratio primarily on most of these reels. 99.98% of fly reels are a one-to-one ratio. Let's talk about large arbor reels and, and first start by explaining what they are. Because well, it's I pretty might... standard nowadays to have larger arbor reels. You look so disgusted right now. Do tell. What are you thinking? Well, look, I, I mean, large arbor reels. So yes. your large arbor reel has got the larger diameter spool, which the manufacturer will say gives you still for the one-to-one ratio. So for one wind of the handle, you get one retrieve of the spool. You're taking up more space. But my only argument with the large arbor reels, and this is probably a personal beef of mine. I'm learning so much about you right now. Um, We need to put our baby to bed earlier more often. So (laughs) the large arbor reel, it's a larger diameter spool. That only allows you to put a small amount of backing on there in comparison if, if if you had a full depth spool. Because that's a compromise, right? So you don't get as much backing. You can only put a smaller amount of backing on there plus the fly line and you've got this magical large arbor reel. Now I asked the question, if that same reel... Wait, 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 wait. wait. I'm so sorry, but hang on. These, like, let's say that ridiculous... I can't remember the name of it, but that huge loop reel. I mean, it was, I don't know inches, but how, like, it was the size of my hand from fingertip to palm, you know, the base of my hand. That's how big it was. I mean, it's almost twice the size of a regular reel. Can't you still fit the same amount of backing on it because the reel itself is larger? Like, I get what you're saying. If it's a large arbor reel that is the same size as a regular reel, you'd be compromising backing. But if the Mm. reel itself is larger... Doesn't that take into account the well, additional it's backing? Well, it's a larger diameter reel, so you get a longer retrieve per turn. I get that. But my only argument is if, if it was that same large diameter spool, but it was full depth, let's say you might have a half a mile of backing on there, you'd be at the same end diameter as what you would have been if it's the shallow 
sure. large output but, reel in the first place. But do you know what I'm talking about with that huge loop reel? I do, yeah. But it doesn't make any difference. Imagine that huge loop reel if the spool was not inadvertent commas large arbor, if it was a full depth spool, mm-hmm. but you just had five times the amount of backing on there, you'd still end up at that same diameter, would you not? Sure, but are you saying that that big, huge, large loop reel fits less backing than another five, like a a standard, regular five-weight reel? No, no, I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is is that if that reel had a full-depth spool for its diameter, Mm -hmm. you could fit an enormous amount of backing on there. But you wouldn't need that much backing. Probably not, but you could fit an enormous amount of backing on there and you'd still be at the same diameter. I understand their argument. is that the only bone that you have to pick? I understand their argument is a weight thing because remember with the large arbor that none of that stuff exists. That's why you have porting in it. I mean, holes, just just to bring John back here, when you have holes in the reel, it lightens it up. I think John's left the shop. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) He might have even stolen something on his way out. Stop it. <laughs> Look, it's a per- very, very personal thing. It shouldn't even be part of this. It's just large arbors to me. Pfft. All right, but they exist. They exist. They're popular. Everyone loves a large arbor. <laughs> okay. They too. <laughs> now, one of the things that I see a lot of people do when they're new to fly fishing and they haven't spent time pretending to reel in. See, a lot of people go out with their fly rod and their line and they cast and they become competent out in the field. But then what they forget to do is they forget to pretend to actually reel and fish. So when they finally start to reel and fish, they completely fall to pieces. So unlike a multiplier or bait caster, where you've got the worm gear that helps to feed that line back on evenly when you're winding it in, with a fly reel, you actually have to wind the line on evenly. Well, yeah, as you retrieve, there's no, it's a one-to-one ratio. There's no gearbox or anything. There's no worm drive. So as you wind in the line, you need to... It's not a big job. It's not a big workload, but you need to. But if to, you don't remember to do it, you'll end up with this big pile of line hugging the side of the reel. Big bunch of grapes, yeah. And then what happens is you've taken up all the space in your reel, and now all of a sudden you've got ten more feet of line to reel in, and you and can't. You're jammed. Yeah, it's horrible. And can't do another one. So embarrassing. Very embarrassing. Has yeah. that happened to you? No. Me neither. <laughs> no. So it sort of happens naturally. I mean, as you wind the line with the one to one. No gearbox reel. You you need to use your other. I use my pinky finger that's on the rod to distribute the line from side to side across the reel, so you can get it all back on there. Do I use my finger? Yeah, my I think I use my ring finger and my pinky finger. Yeah, yeah. Just a little bit of practice is all. Okay. Is there anything in particular or about fly reels in particular that you can think of that we need to cover? I'm sure we've missed so much stuff. I would suggest to anybody out there to recap, I think, buy a fly reel that is of the correct size for the rod you have and and the correct size for this kind of fishing that you're doing and just buy the best one you can afford comfortably. I I don't think you need to go whole hog. Just buy the best one you can afford and you're comfortable with. And if you're going to spend your money on something, it should be the fly line, which we will talk about in an upcoming episode. No problem at all. Happy to return. I think the cops have got John. They're wrestling him down the road. (laughs) Can you try to sound like you're not dying? I can try and sound that way. My rod chip's so big, the six-piece will 
rattle around in it like a throwing a sausage down a hallway. You can't no, you can't use that analogy. <laughs> he's got a he's got a bobbin in his pocket that he's knocked off on the way out. He's looking to get into fly tying. I'm in. <laughs> Where do I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, 